It seems Clifton was visiting the courthouse in Joliet, Illinois, to support his cousin, who was about to be sentenced for a crime. Well, at the precise moment that the judge, Judge Daniel Rozak, was reading the sentence, Clifton let out a large, loud yawn. Well, because of that ill-timed yawn, the judge cited Clifton for contempt of court and handed down a sentence of six months of jail time. Now, ironically, his cousin, who was scheduled to be sentenced that day, only got probation. But Clifton, who went to court to support his cousin, went straight to jail. Well, in the aftermath of the story, discussion ensued on cable news networks about judicial power and about Judge Rozak's history of passing down extreme contempt charges and even about the nature of yawning. Clifton's father argued that a yawn is an involuntary action. The prosecutor in the courtroom that day said, it was not a simple yawn, it was a loud and boisterous attempt to disrupt the proceedings. Was Clinton's yawn a premeditated first degree offense? Will the truth about the yawn ever emerge? However innocuous or flagrant the yawn, Clifton Williams probably wishes that he had held it in. Well, in the end, Clifton only served a few days of that six-month sentence, but after the case was over, questions still lingered. Was the judge's penalty excessive? Some people reacted in disbelief. Others were outraged. But almost everyone, well, that is except Judge Rozak, agreed that the punishment did not fit the crime. Now, of course, the judge had the authority to hand down a contempt sentence against Clifton. Judges have broad discretion under the law about contempt charges. But was the judgment fair? Was it just? Just who does this judge think he is anyway? Well, you know, for a lot of people in our culture, the wrath or judgment of God seems about as arbitrary as Judge Rozak's contempt ruling. In other words, they think that God's punishments don't fit our crime. Or that really there is no clear and true way to define what a crime is anyway, at least as defined by those of us who would follow God. Well, as I mentioned, we're back in our journey through the Gospel of John this morning. And I just want to recap a little bit from last week. Last week we witnessed an encounter that Jesus had with an unnamed man a man that he miraculously and supernaturally healed at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And if you remember, the man had been in that condition, his lameness for 38 years, but Jesus healed him. And then the man rolled up his bed mat and started walking. And as he was walking, he ran into a group of the religious leaders and they rebuked him. Remember, because there he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath, the horrors. Well, these leaders were so blinded by their allegiance to a form of organized religion that they would not even acknowledge that a miracle had taken place. And eventually, of course, they learned that Jesus was the one who healed the man. And so they want to criticize and attack and even kill Jesus. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking the more, all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even 
calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so we see the root of the problem, don't we? Just who does this guy Jesus think he is anyway? What makes his truth relevant or worthy or applicable to us? Well, I'm calling today's message Truly, Truly. Truly, truly, because it is based on three key statements in our text today where Jesus makes uh, that statement, truly, truly, and he does it in answer to the criticism of these religious leaders. They're critical of his healing of that guy, and so they come at him, and they're throwing all these charges, and Jesus has some things to say, some true things, some truly true things to say. And so I want to invite you to read together with me uh, the first part of this section of scripture beginning in verse 19 of chapter 5. Let's read together. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Amen. The word of God. Well, 25 times in the Gospel of John, we hear from the lips of Jesus this introductory statement, truly Truly I say to you. Twice in the text that we just read. And it's unique to the Gospel of John that the word truly is repeated. That kind of pattern is something that John favors. Truly, truly. In the other Gospels, the other writers, they just write one truly. But John emphasizes, he shows us, here's what Jesus was really getting at. It was a double truly. And what does that mean anyway? Why does Jesus use it? Well, simply put, the phrase means, I am solemnly telling you the truth. All right, when you were a kid, did you ever say, uh, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I'm telling the truth. Or I swear on my mother's grave. All right, that's somewhat what Jesus is doing here, but he's doing it much more seriously and solemnly. I am solemnly telling you the truth. The word truly is one that you're familiar with. It's the same Greek word that we translate amen. Say that with me. Amen. Truly. All right. When we use the word, we use it at the end of a prayer, don't we? And when we do that, it's an expression of faith. It's appealing to God. We're saying, let it be so. All right. What we just prayed, what we just said, let it be so. May it be so. But when Jesus uses the amen or the truly at the beginning of a statement in the Bible, and by the way, he's the only one in the Bible that does this. All right. Jesus. He's the only one that says truly, truly at the beginning. When he does it, it's an assertion that he is making a very solemn declaration. 
And he wants his hearers to listen carefully to the statement that he's about to make. He's saying, I got something important to tell you. Now, it's, that doesn't discount all the other stuff Jesus says, all right? But what he's doing here is he's wanting to raise the stakes, if you will. Add weight to the present statement that he's about to share. So, we're going to look at these three truly, truly statements. And I, I think it's going to be a, a time for us to explore the relevance and the worthiness of Jesus' first century teachings as we apply them to our lives here in the 21st century. So the first thing that we want to consider this morning is true authority. True authority. The first accusation that the leaders, the religious leaders make, their number one complaint about Jesus, and the reason they want to kill him is because he is claiming the authority of God the Father. He's claiming equality with God. He's not just merely claiming to be a, a child of God, as was every faithful Jew, but the divine child, the Son of God. And to that, in essence... If I were to paraphrase, Jesus says, yep, I sure am. I sure am. The very thing you're accusing me of is absolutely true. And he does that by making a number of startling claims about his authority. And I want to just look at those briefly with you. And the first of those claims is that Jesus is in perfect harmony and communion with the Father. Excuse me. <clears throat> so, in uh, verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And so Jesus says that the accusation that his healing of the man was in opposition uh, to God is utterly nonsense. He says the son can't do anything of his own accord, if God was opposed to the healing of that man on the Sabbath, then how would Jesus have the authority to accomplish it? It obviously took God's power, and that would not be given to somebody that God was in opposition to, would it? Well, the, the second claim of Jesus is that he possessed authority over the power of life and death. In verse 21, we read, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, surely only God as creator has the power to give life or to raise somebody from the dead. And yet Jesus claimed very boldly that he possessed the same power as God the Father. The Jews recognized that God alone had the power over life and death. And so when Jesus says, hey, I've got that power, that just drove them crazy. Like God and unlike a man, Jesus has the power to give healing. And not just healing, but indeed life. And we're, of course, we're talking about eternal life to those whom he will. He holds that authority. And then Jesus' third claim of authority is that he is the one who will judge mankind. And that, in fact, God the Father doesn't judge anybody. He's given that authority over to the Son. 
And so these leaders are accusing Jesus of acting in opposition to God's will, uh, and therefore he is subject to God's judgment. But Jesus' response is that not only is he acting in perfect harmony with God's will, but he himself is the one who is appointed to be the judge. Now that is some real authority, isn't it? In fact, so great is his authority that in verse 23 he says that we must show him the same honor that is due the Father. So who does this guy Jesus think he is anyway? Well, he's the one in charge. He is the one in harmony with the Father. He is the one that possesses the power of life and death and judgment and eternity. That is who he is. And that is true authority. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, the next truly true statement that we want to look at is about this. True belief. True belief. In verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from life, death to life. And so Jesus goes on in this next section to say that a final judgment is coming in which only those who hear and believe in the words of Jesus, that is his teachings, those that hear and believe in God's plan and purpose for our life, those are the ones who will escape judgment. So we must transition from merely recognizing his authority. It's important to recognize his authority, but we don't stop there. We then move to living out his ways, his commands, his guidelines. Professional golfer Paul Azinger was diagnosed with cancer, just 33 years of age. Now he had won a PGA championship and he had 10 tournament victories to his credit. But in his biography, he writes this. He says, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. Then another fear hit me even harder. He thought, I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a question of when. Everything I had accomplished in golf suddenly became meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was live. It's quite a statement, isn't it? He goes on and he says, then he remembered something that he had heard months before from a, a golf chaplain in a Bible study before a tournament. And the chaplain had made this statement. We are not in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying. We are in the land of the dying, trying to get to the land of the living. Well, Azinger eventually recovered from chemotherapy. He returned to the PGA Tour. He even saw some continued success. But that bout with cancer deepened his perspective. He wrote, I've made a lot of money since I've been on the tour. And I've won a lot of tournaments. But that happiness is always temporary. The only way you will ever have true contentment is through belief in Jesus Christ and a commitment to his ways. I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me or that I don't have problems, 
but I feel like I found the answer to the six-foot hole. Isn't that a great phrase? He's not talking about a six-foot putt. He's talking about the six-foot hole of death and the answer that he's found in Jesus Christ. See, we are to truly trust in his authority. We are to truly believe in his saving power and plan for us. And these then lead to the third truly statement from the Lord. The third truly, truly, true, true, true statement. And that is true life. True life. Let's read the next section of our text together from John chapter 5 beginning in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Amen. The word of God. Well, if you were to travel to Palestine today, it's still likely that you would witness a scene that Jesus himself certainly saw 2,000 years ago. And that would be of Bedouin shepherds bringing their flocks home from the various pastures that they've been out grazing in during the day. And often those flocks will end up at the same watering hole around dusk so that they all become mixed together. Eight or nine small flocks turning into kind of a convention of thirsty sheep. Well, the shepherds don't worry about the mix-up because when it's time to go home, each of the shepherds issues his or her own distinctive call. A special trill or whistle or a particular tune on a particular reed pipe and the shepherd's sheep know to withdraw from the crowd and to follow their shepherd home. They know to whom they belong. They know their shepherd's voice, and it is the only one that they will follow. Well, friends, we have the opportunity to respond to the call of Jesus, the call of eternal life that the good shepherd makes for us. And that call is to come, to come and to receive true life, spiritual life that starts now. Not when we die and go to heaven. It starts now and it carries us into eternity to what Jesus called in the text the resurrection of life. And the reality is, friends, we can respond now while we have physical life and we can live in hope and in confidence or we can wait and we can ignore or we can put off true life and instead choose the artificial, the counterfeit life that is offered in this world. Now, if that is our choice, then our destiny is what the scripture called the resurrection of judgment. Which sounds better to you? The resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment? You see, this is 
the truly true option and invitation that Jesus extends to everyone. The true authority of Jesus as Lord and leader. The true belief in Jesus as Savior. The true life offered by the true life giver. And all of these truly, truly true truths lead us to a final conclusion. And that is true magnificence. True magnificence. This is the application, if you will, of the the three truly true truths that we've just looked at. I want to think about with you for a few moments the true magnificence of Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus was the most magnificent person ever to walk the face of the earth? Just let that sink in for just a moment. The most magnificent person. What did that look like? Was there just radiance coming off of him? No, not usually. Were angels flying around and announcing his magnificence? No, not on a regular basis. And yet Jesus was magnificent, the most magnificent. What did that look like? If we were there, would we have even noticed? Have you ever have you ever had a chance to meet somebody that was quote-unquote magnificent? When I, was, when I was a kid, I remember I was out riding my bike one day in our neighborhood when, when all of a sudden a bunch of police cars came flying by, lights on, sirens going. Then they, they were followed by more police cars and then a bunch of black SUVs and then some more other black SUVs, and those back ones had people hanging out the windows with cameras. It was just kind of wild to me. And then all of a sudden, they were all gone. And someone in that motorcade was magnificent. Who was it? Well, later that day, I found out that it was the President of the United States, Gerald Ford. He was in our town for a speech at the university and we didn't live too far from the university and so apparently they decided to take a a shortcut through our little neighborhood and we were exposed to magnificence for a few moments. They don't do that for you or for me. Anybody have an escort like that through town? So how do we identify magnificence? How do you identify it? When you see someone walking down the street or standing in a building or maybe on a a movie screen or a television screen, how do you know if they are magnificent or not? I mean, they don't have a police escort. They aren't in a motorcade. So do you just ask them? Excuse me, are you magnificent? What if we did that with Jesus? Jesus, are you magnificent? Well, Jesus mentioned some things in the next few verses that I think kind of get at this. In verses 31 and 32, listen to these words. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So you see, anybody can say they're magnificent. I am Mr. Wonderful, just ask me, right? That doesn't mean it's true, does it? If you want to know if someone is magnificent, you don't ask them. That's not how you find out true magnificence. So how do we find it? 
Well, I'm going to move quickly through the remainder of chapter 5 because this text shows us exactly how the true magnificence of Jesus is revealed. And I want to start with this. First, Jesus says that John the Baptist spoke about it. He spoke about Jesus' magnificence. In verse 33, he said to these, uh, his critics, right, the religious leaders, he says to them, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Now, the Jewish leaders have sent priests and Levites and Pharisees and spies all to check out John the Baptist, asking him repeatedly who he was. Are you the Messiah? And he repeatedly said, nope, I'm not. But he did tell them that someone was standing among them that they did not know. That person would come next. He was a person that John said, I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals. And he was talking about Jesus. Of course we know that Jesus was much more important than John. This was John's testimony. And Jesus himself affirms that it's true. So John the Baptist spoke and testified about Jesus' magnificence. But there's even better and greater testimony than that of John. Next we see that the Father showed it. The Father showed Jesus' magnificence. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have, Jesus says, is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus says there is a weightier a more valid testimony to his own magnificence. And it is God the Father himself. The Father has allowed Jesus to do supernatural things, things that humans cannot do. These miracles prove that God had sent Jesus. They were proof that God was with him. These Jewish leaders themselves were eyewitnesses. They had just been exposed to the healing of that lame man. They saw with their own eyes a guy that hadn't been able to walk for 38 years was walking through the courtyards of the temple carrying his bed. It was a miracle. It was proof that Jesus was magnificent. They'd seen or heard other miracles of Jesus as well. But then there's more. There's even more. Let's read on in verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Those are some fighting words right there. As Jesus speaks to the religious leaders... The things that Jesus did were not the only proof from the Father. The Father himself has spoken in his own voice and said that Jesus was his son, that he loved him, that he was well pleased with him. That brings with it a whole bunch of magnificence, doesn't it? You know when that happened? That happened when John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. But you know what? The Jewish leaders... They weren't there. They missed it. They had been intrigued with John, at least for a while, but they weren't dedicated. 
They didn't want to stick around to see what else John had to say or what else was going to develop. And so they missed out. Not only did they miss out on that magnificent event, but they themselves, the spiritual leaders of the nation, Jesus said, had never heard God's voice nor seen him. And God's message, the very message that was in the law, in the word that they knew so well, Jesus says, that message doesn't live in you. You see, they didn't get the message very well. They didn't know it. They didn't stay in it. They didn't live in it. And so Jesus has to tell them these things. And that's not all. He also said that they didn't even trust God. That is quite a condemnation. So John the Baptist spoke about Jesus' magnificence. God the Father showed his magnificence, and the spiritual leaders would not listen. What about you? What about you? But there's one more witness that we want to look at here, and that is that the scriptures told about it. The scriptures told about the magnificence of Jesus. Look at verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures. Jesus is talking to the leaders. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Are there any books written about you? Are there books that are maybe not written about you, but nevertheless mention you? I don't know. Maybe some of you have a mention in, in a book. My wife reminded me that she's mentioned in a medical journal about a procedure she had many years ago. So she, she saw that and she said, I, I'm mentioned in a book. <laughs> but wouldn't that be something if you could open up a book and point to what it says and say, that's me. That's me right there. Jesus could do that. None of us can do it, but Jesus can. None of us are in the Bible, but Jesus is. He is mentioned hundreds of times in the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies. And guess what? They're all good things. At that time, Jesus could literally unroll a scroll and read it and point about it and say, this is me. This is me. He did that one time in his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue when he read from the book of Isaiah. And he rolled it up and then he said, this is fulfilled today in your presence. Jesus actually did that. He said, this is me. And that is something spectacular that points to the magnificence of Jesus. The Jewish leaders had studied the Old Testament inside and out. They'd spent their lives dedicated to it because they knew it was valuable. It told about eternal life and God's plan. And yet here, standing right in front of them, the one, the one mentioned in the scriptures many times, the fulfillment of all the recorded prophecies so familiar to them. He's standing right there. And what is their response? They refuse to come to him. He that could give them eternal life is standing there, but they will not receive it. Though John had spoken about it, the Father had shown it, the Scripture had revealed it, they would not accept 
the true magnificence of Jesus. And so for the last few minutes, I want to just answer this question. Why? Why would they not receive his magnificence? Well, that is because they had just missed it. They missed it. Jesus explains why in the next few verses. In verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from people. Now, glory is another word for magnificence. All right? Where do you and I look to get magnificence from? Are you looking for magnificence from other people? Maybe a pat on the back, a kind word, someone liking you. Is your magnificence rooted in your success, in your job, in your bank account? You see, Jesus didn't need or accept magnificence from people or from things in this world. He wanted magnificence from one place and one place only. And that was from the Father. Let's look on, on at verse 42. Jesus says, but I know that you, religious people, you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. That crazy? Jesus came in his Father's name and they would not accept him. Others came in their own names and they accepted them. I wonder if you've noticed this in our culture, in our world. We love authorities. Well, we love authorities if they line up with our point of view, right? If someone's written a book or has a position or a degree or celebrity or prominence and they agree with us, then we readily accept their authority because it supports our point of view. Just hang out on any kind of social media for a little bit and you'll see this. People will say, well, look, look at this article that proves what I'm saying is true. Read this. Look at this quote from this famous person or this famous person, all to bolster our point of view. We love authorities that support us. You see, these Jewish leaders were the same way. They didn't have the love of God in them. And so they didn't care for the things of God. They said they did, but they really didn't. They didn't value the man of God. Instead, they valued men of worldly prominence. Kind of like us today. In verse 44, Jesus says this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, the Jewish leaders, they loved people talking about them. They liked people bragging about them. They liked the glory. They liked the applause. They liked the front row seats. They liked greetings in the marketplace. They liked being called rabbi. They liked getting magnificence from the people around them. Why didn't they want magnificence from God? Why didn't they look for that? Wasn't it really because God didn't do what they expected him to do? When Jesus comes onto the scene, suddenly it appears that God is going in a different direction from what they expected. Here God is allowing some outsider to perform miracles, many miracles. God was giving him the title of Messiah. People were following him. And guess what? They didn't like that. That's not the way it's supposed to go. 
They were supposed to get that magnificence. And so they missed the magnificence of Jesus because they were looking for the magnificence in the wrong places. And again, I ask this question, what about you and I? Where are we looking for magnificence from? Where do we look for answers, for truth, for true magnificence? From our friends and family, our co-workers, our neighbors? From the way of this world? Or do we look for it in Jesus? As we look for magnificence, will we come up empty in our search like these religious leaders? Do we see his magnificence? I want to encourage you today to look for the magnificence of Jesus. Now, you've probably heard stories about people finding valuable things like in their attic or, uh, you know, an old picture and some antique doodad that turns out to be worth thousands of dollars. But have you ever looked in a barn? If you look in 99 out of 100 barns, then the, maybe the most interesting you'll see, thing you'll see is like a pile of hay or a, a broken down old tractor or something. Well, that didn't deter two motor vehicle specialists. About 10 years ago, these two guys traveled extensively around the rural areas in France. For months, for months, they spent time looking in barns. First, first they had to find the barns. And so they drove down all kinds of country roads looking for them. And then when they found one, they would ask for permission to look in it. And if the owner wasn't home, then they would come back later to get permission. And they kept looking and they kept looking. But they usually found nothing. There were many, many country roads and many barns. But they were on a search, not for magnificence, but for antique cars. Well, eventually... These two guys were successful. They found a barn full of old classic cars. It seems that the owner, who had been very wealthy, had put all of these cars in barns on his estate for safekeeping back in the early 1970s. And then he died some years later. And guess what? His heirs forgot or didn't know the value of all those cars. And so they sat in the barns and just rotted away. Until these two guys showed up and asked to peek around the estate and look in the old family barns. And it turns out that the stash of cars that they found was worth $18 million. $18 million for that stuff. Can you believe that? Their search paid off. Well, friends... Let me encourage you to continue the search for magnificence. It is out there. If we diligently look in the right places, look to Jesus. See his magnificence. Look to the Father. Do what he asks you to do. And if you will, true magnificence will come into your life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the voice of the Lord Jesus. True authority, true belief, true life 
true magnificence, truly, truly available for each of us who diligently search to experience. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of the Son. And Jesus, we thank you for making the way possible for us to step into magnificence and eternity and all that you have for us. Father, may we be diligent through the help of your Spirit to continue our search. Lord, to rise above the circumstances and the sidetracks and the junk of this world. And Father, may we stay focused on what is true and noble and pure and beautiful and of good repute. Lord, may our hearts be inclined towards your ways and not our own ways. Father, thank you for inviting us into your magnificence. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.